I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, my name is Robert Lamb, and this is The Monster Fact. In this special omnibus episode of The Monster Fact, please enjoy the first four episodes concerning monsters from the DC Comics universe. Killer Croc, Swamp Thing, Doomsday, and Mr. Mind. Up first, let's check in with Killer Croc. Batman's rogues gallery boasts an unbelievable variety of supervillains, from chaotic clown criminals and calendar aficionados to amorphous clay monsters and cryogenically frozen mad scientists. But in terms of more monstrous foes, a few names rise to the top. There's, of course, the man-bat hybrid man-bat, but I thought we might discuss another famous foe of the caped crusader, Waylon Jones, a.k.a. Killer Croc. Now, if you grew up on the 90s Batman animated series like I did, you probably remember this guy as a pale gray scaly humanoid with big shoulders, sharp teeth, and a skeletal face. He's at home in the waters, especially river and sewer waters, and he possesses great strength for grappling Batman. This character was created back in 1983 for the Batman comic by Jerry Conway, Don Newton, and Gene Colan. His original appearance was greener and scalier, and over the years, designs for Killer Croc have only grown more monstrous. In the 1983 comic debut, he's roughly the size of a large man, but in the 2009 video game Arkham Asylum, he's an absolute ogre that basically fills an entire prison cell by himself. The original explanation given for Killer Croc's appearance is a skin condition, probably meant to be something from the ichthyosis family of genetic skin conditions that can produce a scale-like quality of the skin. Now, I'm not sure how tasteful this ultimately is, and besides, it's hardly an excuse for other aspects of Killer Croc's appearance and character. Plus, to be clear, Killer Croc has dinosaur feet and other dinosaur-like qualities in his later appearances. 
As such, these later incarnations of Killer Croc are often explained as a severe form of atavism, a real-life recurrence of a genetic trait typical of an ancestral form. The topic is explored in the excellent book DC, Anatomy of a Metahuman by S.D. Perry and Matthew K. Manning with illustrations by Ming Dole. As the authors point out, a vestigial tail or an extra nipple in human beings is not too uncommon, an example of this, but if the affected gene is old enough, a pre-mammalian trait may be expressed in a human being. Some of our genetic pre-mammalian traits can be seen in our embryonic development. We see temporary examples of this in the dental plicodes of developing human fetuses, which according to Petrakova et al. in a 2006 paper for the Journal of Experimental Zoology, resemble early tooth primordia in reptiles. The human fetus also temporarily develops a tail, and a 2019 Howard University study identified ancient reptilian limb muscles in human embryos during the early weeks of gestation. More startling, however, is a case reported by Walia et al. in a 2010 edition of the Texas Heart Institute Journal. When a 59-year-old man sought medical attention concerning chest pains, doctors discovered some surprising myocardial architecture. Quote, Remarkably, the morphology resembled that of the reptilian heart. That is, it featured direct communications to the ventricle cavity and had the sinusoidal characteristics of non-compacted myocardium." Unquote. The authors note that this was the second known case of such a heart in human beings. While a medical curiosity, certainly, there was certainly nothing monstrous about this. The fictional case of Killer Croc would seem to involve a fantastic exaggeration of reptilian atavism in a human being, and multiple cases of it at that, impacting various bodily systems and features, a kind of ridiculous atavism jackpot, if you will. Now, obviously, crocodilian morphology factors into various mythological creatures from various cultures and time periods around the world where crocodiles live or where stories of crocodiles would drift to. Traditions in Egypt, Zambia, and Indonesia involve humans that transform into crocodiles to harm others, akin to the werewolves of Western lore. So it's likely here that we find the closest thing to killer croc outside of comic books, rather than in our own human medical history. Now let's turn our attention to one of my all-time favorite comic book characters, the Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing was the creation of writer Lynn Wine and artist Bernie Wrightson, debuting in the House of Secrets horror comic back in 1971. Since that time, Swamp Thing has appeared in two live-action 80s films, two live-action TV series, and numerous animation and video game projects. But among comic fans, there's nothing to compare to Alan Moore's run with the character during the 1980s. Swamp Thing's original origin story was not all that different from other lab-accident-spawned monsters. Scientist Alec Holland his experimental formula and a lab explosion in the bayou transforms man into plant-based monster who in turn battles various other monsters, often in the form of Dr. Anton Arcane's unmen, plus many others. In Moore's run with the character, however, he subverted this trope, invoking biochemical memory experiments about planarian worms. We discussed these in our episode, Devourer of Memories. His take 
is that Alec Holland does not survive the explosion in the swamp. He is not a man who becomes a plant-like monster, but plant life of the swamp that generates a body and a sense of self in the likeness of the dead man it consumes. In this, Moore stripped Swamp Thing of any direct connection to his human identity and opens the door for a deeper connection to the green and the parliament of trees, essentially recreating the character as a plant elemental, a warrior of Gaia, and overall super Lorax, if you will. If you haven't read the saga of the Swamp Thing, I highly, highly recommend it. Virtually nothing can touch it. Now, longtime listeners to Stuff to Blow Your Mind and general philosophy junkies might remember a similar creature. No, not Marvel's Man-Thing, though he's awesome as well, but philosopher Donald Davidson's Swamp Man Thought Experiment. We've talked about this on the show as well, back in our Thought Experiments episode. It basically goes as follows. If a lightning strike in the swamp were to destroy Davidson's body, and transform an adjacent dead tree into an exact living replica of Davidson without reusing any of the previous Davidson molecules, then what do we have? This tree double, or swamp man, it behaves just like the previous Davidson and seems to know what he knew, but does it really know anything? In this, swamp man is a rumination on thought and meaning. In Knowing One's Mind, Davidson writes the following, quote, My replica can't recognize my friends. It can't recognize anything since it never cognized anything in the first place. It can't know my friends' names, though of course it seems to. It can't remember my house. It can't mean what I do by the word house, for example, since the sound house it makes was not learned in a context that would give it the right meaning, or any meaning at all. Indeed, I don't see how my replica can be said to mean anything by the sounds it makes, nor to have any thoughts." Unquote. Now, it's worth noting that Davidson, who died in 2003, published this idea on Swamp Man a few years after Moore recast the origin of Swamp Thing. And as far as I can tell, no one is entirely certain on how and to what extent the two are connected. Authors Chris Gallagher and Nathaniel Goldberg explored the connection, or possible connection, in the 2019 book Superhero Thought Experiments, Comic Book Philosophy, and contend, quote, While there's no evidence that either Moore or Davidson read each other, Moore's series appears to be philosophically influenced, and Davidson's thought experiment appears to be pop-culturally influenced. Unquote. So perhaps it's just the case of two men on different tracks thinking deep thoughts about swamp and the self. Now, Gavalier and Goldberg also stress that there are distinct differences in their treatments. Quote, when it comes to meaning or semantics, swamp man is a blank slate. While Moore's Swamp Thing initially mistakes itself for Alec Holland, only later to realize that it isn't Alec Holland, Swamp Man never mistakes itself for Donald Davidson. It only appears to do so. If Davidson is right, Swamp Man thinks no thoughts. It can't think it's Davidson because it can't think at all. Hmm. So ponder on all of that 
And by all means, pick up a copy of Superhero Thought Experiments if you want a deeper dive on this topic. Uh, It's really quite an excellent book. Comic fans, I will leave you with this. Here's a question for you. Has Swamp Thing ever actually met Davidson's Swamp Man in the pages of a comic book? It seems like, in general, any kind of matchup or encounter that one could possibly imagine has occurred, or no doubt will occur. I can't help but wonder how this would go down. What would Swamp Thing think about the encounter, and what would Swamp Man seem to think about it but actually not think at all? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Of course, we can't talk about DC monsters without talking about one of Superman's most monstrous opponents. It's time to talk about Doomsday. The brutal, spiny-shouldered Kryptonian monster best known for killing Superman in the early 1990s. While the superhero's death didn't last too long, it was certainly a great way to launch a supervillain's career, and Doomsday has remained one of the resurrected Superman's most recognizable foes. His creation is credited to Dan Jurgens, Brett Breeding, Jerry Ordway, Louise Simonson, and Roger Stern. In DC, Anatomy of a Metahuman by S.D. Perry and Matthew K. Manning, with illustrations by Ming Doyle, the authors lay out Doomsday's tragic origin story. An alien scientist named Bertrand takes a humanoid child and exposes that child to the deadly prehistoric environment of the planet Krypton. The child dies, but Bertrand resurrects the child via advanced cloning technology and reintroduces the child to the wild with added traits to protect them. 
The child dies again, and the amoral Bertrand continues the cycle over and over again, using sci-fi cloning technology in the place of natural selection to eventually produce an incredibly tough super being. The ultimate metahuman combatant, now virtually undying himself, incapable of amazing feats of regeneration, this is the being that will become known as Doomsday. However, as Doomsday retains the traumatic memory of his many formative deaths, he's ultimately tormented by the rage so much that he eventually kills his mad scientist creator and continues to see the face of his hated creator in others and rages against them incessantly. It's a clever twist on evolution, melding the science of natural selection, the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, and psychological trauma. It's also interesting when we start considering the idea of resurrection from a religious and mythological standpoint. Superman, in the Death of Superman story arc, quite clearly echoes the religious motif of the dying and rising god, famously seen in such figures as the ancient Egyptian Osiris and the Christian Jesus. Doomsday is seemingly something else, though. Not a god who has died and come back, but a mortal who has died and come back so many times that he has become at least a demigod and a potential slayer of the divine. Though in many ways Doomsday is not so different. After all, there is a cyclical aspect to the death and resurrection of such religious figures as Osiris and Jesus as well, making their deaths and resurrections also quite numerable in a sense. Even in cases where there is only the singular death and the singular resurrection, these events are often remembered or celebrated alongside cyclical events, like the passing of the seasons and the inundation of the Nile River. But they are still singular resurrections celebrated cyclically in multitude. Doomsday, however, has experienced a multitude of deaths across linear time. In this, you could argue that he is a modern, secular, linear perversion of the cyclical, sacred, and mythic, and therefore a fitting opponent for the godlike Superman. But I would be very interested to hear what you think about the matter. Finally, here's a more obscure DC villain, though he has shown up in the movies. It's Mr. Mind. Meet Mr. Mind, a tiny Venusian worm or caterpillar, to be clear, he has legs, with enormous power at its disposal. Created in DC Comics in the early 1940s by Otto Bender and C.C. Beck, Mr. Mind stands as one of the primary supervillains of Captain Marvel. Not the Marvel Captain Marvel, but the DC Captain Marvel, mind you. Uh, this is the one that moviegoers may know best as Shazam. Mr. Mind also makes a couple of cameo appearances in those films. Now, Mr. Mind boasts incredible psychic powers and a genius-level intellect to back those powers up. So he's gotten into all sorts of mischief over the years, including founding the Monster Society of Evil. He also employs at least two key bits of technology, special classes, and an audio amplifier to interact with the larger world because, again, despite his powers, he is a tiny worm or caterpillar. But what I want to focus on is his old and frankly odd origin story from the Silver Age of Comics, in which he makes the interplanetary voyage from Venus to Earth in order to meet ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's dummy, Charlie McCarthy. This was slash is a real ventriloquist dummy. 
Mr. Mind, you see, had heard Charlie McCarthy on Earth's radio program transmissions and apparently mistook fiction for reality. He was, of course, disappointed upon learning the truth. It's a common sci-fi trope explored on Futurama and elsewhere. Extraterrestrials pick up on transmissions from Earth and either misunderstand the difference between fiction and reality or simply lack the ability to tell the difference. There are even more sci-fi works that explore the larger idea of intercepted Earth transmissions, most notably Carl Sagan's 1985 novel, Contact. The sci in the sci-fi here is, of course, that for more than 100 years, we've been busting out commercial radio transmissions here on Earth. However, as Robert Matthews points out in a BBC Science Focus article, most of these signals were absorbed by the atmosphere or drowned out by solar radio transmissions. So our radio leakage as a planet was perhaps minimal. However, Matthews stresses that Cold War military radar transmissions are strong enough to have already broadcast our presence out to anyone listening within 60 light years. There have also been deliberate radio transmissions aimed at communicating our existence, such as the 1974 Arecibo message sent to Messier 13, or at least in the spirit of such communication. But the basic idea of such transmissions, either emanating from us or potentially picked up from an extraterrestrial source, has garnered much discussion and debate over the decades. How likely is alien reception or our reception of an alien transmission? Based on the vast distances involved and limits of possible travel speeds as we know them, how should we approach such long-term concerns? And just how careful should we be when it comes to such radio transmissions or even our radio leakage? Because while our most optimistic views of extraterrestrial contact are rosy indeed, some of the more pessimistic models, based in large part on Earth's own history of outside context situations in which one culture encounters a technologically superior one, are perhaps best avoided. And then there's the Mr. Mind model in which we managed to attract a caterpillar supervillain to our planet with our tantalizing 1940s radio comedy shows. Thank goodness we have so many Captain Marvels to deal with that sort of thing. All right, we're going to go and close it out here, but I'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for future installments of The Monster Fact or The Artifact, you can contact us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.